This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. So CBD is cannabidiol, which is a naturally occurring compound that's found in the resinous flower of the cannabis plant. It's a really powerful molecule. It's very safe. It's non-addictive. It's non-impairing. And it has all sorts of great health benefits that a lot of patients are realizing today and really helping improve their lives. Welcome to the new and improved 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll get the 411 on CBD. We'll discuss how to have a mindful marriage. We'll learn how to increase longevity naturally. And lastly, we'll hear what makes a good cookbook. But first, a little bit of business. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMED Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. Shaker Parmar has over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, lawyer, and design thinker. He's the CEO of Harvest Medicine and the Chief Strategy Officer at Vivo Cannabis. As CEO of HMED, he led the company to become one of the fastest-growing, highest-rated cannabis clinics in the country, attracting over 22,000 patients in under two years. As the CSO of Vivo Cannabis, Shaker plays an integral role in evaluating merger and acquisition opportunities and charting the strategic direction of the company. Welcome back to the show, Shaker. How are you? Good, Jamie. Thanks again for having me on. So today is a very important day in cannabis culture. Of course, I'm referring to Passover. Actually, today is 420, which is historically a day for cannabis legalization protests and events, now rendered obsolete in Canada. Now we can use the day to celebrate its healing properties, much of which is derived from CBD, right? Absolutely. And what a great day it is, and a very happy 420 to all our cannabis-friendly listeners out there. Fantastic. So CBD, what is it and how does it work? So CBD is cannabidiol, uh, which is a naturally occurring compound that's found in the resinous flower of the cannabis plant. It's a really powerful molecule. It's very safe. It's non-addictive. It's non-impairing, and it has all sorts of great health benefits that a lot of patients are realizing today and really helping improve their lives. Does science understand currently how CBD works? 
Yeah, you know, we, we have a pretty decent idea of the interactions that CBD has. When we look at cannabis, I mean, generally the plant hasn't been as well studied as we would like it to be. Right. But the components that have been studied are, are particularly two molecules that have received the primary amount of attention. One, of course, is THC, which is the part of the plant that people are more aware of. That's the part of the plant that uh, rec users and people looking for the high uh, enjoy. But CBD is really has been for a long time sort of the unsung hero that's now really getting a lot of attention because it is so powerful for things like chronic pain, anxiety, inflammation, and depression, and, and you know, just so many different conditions that the patients are reporting very powerful results of. Excellent. So you mentioned earlier that CBD can be helpful with all sorts of different ailments. Tell us a bit about some of the things that CBD can help us with. Sure. So, you know, it, it can help with things like autoimmune diseases, whether that, you know, stems from some sort of inflammation or it takes something like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, neurological conditions like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, epilepsy. It can help with, you know, some sort of metabolic conditions like diabetes. It can help with, of course, the neuropsychiatric illnesses such as ADHD and PTSD and a lot of gut disorders as well, like colitis and Crohn's and IBS. And, and so, you know, when you take all that into consideration, sometimes preaching about CBD can sound a bit like you're, you're preaching snake oil because it can be so beneficial. And I think it's right. important to actually note that while it is incredibly beneficial, it's not, you know, it's like you know, any other kind of medication. It's not perfect. It's not the one, the end-all, be-all of the, the cure for that condition. Right. And certainly, for the most part, you know, I wouldn't even say that CBD is a cure for anything. It's, it's a part of the treatment plan that helps you deal with the symptoms and manage the disease and, and, and illness you're suffering. Right. So it's not a panacea. It's more associative and can help, for example, with some of the symptomology like anxiety, stress, pain, discomfort, et cetera, et cetera, lack of sleep, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and absolutely. So I think that's a very accurate statement. I think and where it really stems from and why it impacts so many different things is because of the endocannabinoid system that exists in our body. So, you know, it was only in the early 90s that we discovered that, hey, human beings, and it turns out almost all mammals have this endocannabinoid system. And what does this system really do? Well, this system maintains homeostasis. It regulates your body. It makes sure that things are at the right levels at the right times. And so much of modern disease and conditions that we suffer from is actually from a result of that regulation not being done properly. So it's not a terribly large surprise that the system that regulates it, which CBD really helps with, has as many benefits and does impact as many conditions as CBD does. Okay. We've established that CBD might be helpful for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And let's move forward to actually taking CBD. How does one do it? What are the delivery systems that are available? And let's talk about the pros and cons of it. Sure. So currently in the in the legal regime in Canada, you really have sort of three or, or I guess four maybe types to kind of consume cannabis. First sure. of all, there is the dried cannabis uh, flower itself, uh, the dried buds. You can get CBD strains that are high in CBD uh, and low in THC that you can just vaporize and consume that way. There are then the oils, which can come in a number of formats, so either just as droppers or as soft gels. And then we also have some companies who are providing a decarboxylated product, which is just the dry herb that's been cooked up, but you can eat it. You can, so it's an, it's an ingestible format. And then very recently, some companies are trying to pair up CBD and a topical uh, of some sort, like an oil or a bomb 
and, and you can mix your CBD in with that, and you can help it to treat skin conditions. In the United States uh, and in other parts of the world where there's different kind of regulations, we've seen things like suppositories with CBD. We've certainly seen a whole lot of, you know, things like patches for people's like lower back pain. Hmm. Um, we've even seen things like mints and, of course, other edible formats. So all that's going to come. And in terms of sort of the benefits and drawbacks of each, really comes down to how long you want it to last and how quickly you need it to act. So, you know, with vaporization, the impact is, is quite immediate. So within 30 seconds to a minute, you're feeling the impact of that CBD. But whereas edibles can take, you know, 30 minutes to 90 minutes to really kick in. And while inhaling it through vaporization, the effects will only last a couple of hours. Ingesting can make the effects last much longer. Right. Okay. And on the topical front, so for, with the oils that you were talking mm. about, is that much the same as the ingestibles in terms of the how quickly it works and how long it lasts? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the science is kind of interesting on the topicals. I mean, what we do know is that the bioavailability of CBD through topical application isn't particularly high, but I think a lot of people do enjoy the, the topical application for topical conditions, like psoriasis, for example, right, right, or acne, and and certainly there's a lot of patient stories out there that do report that that is a really great way to go. Uh, in the United States, there's a number of companies that that have come up with you know some with sort of a better binding agent that kind of helps move the CBD lower onto your into your body as opposed to just staying at the skin level, uh, and they've certainly combined it with some other things to make it more effective, and, and patients do rave about it. So, you know, I think there's, it's a delivery mechanism that's got a very specific use case, but it's not, it's, you know, for example, if you were suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, you're probably far better off ingesting the cannabis than you are applying it topically. Okay. So let's just briefly touch upon some of the drawbacks just so that people are aware of it. So, for example, if you're going to use a vape to have your CBD, I guess one of the problems is if you, you might want not want to agitate your throat because even though you're not smoking it, still using the vaporizer can be a challenge for some people. Sure. I mean, look, inhalation can be a challenge for a lot of people. We actually find this with, you know, newer patients who've never smoked a cigarette or anything like that in their lives. And the act of inhaling smoke or even vapor into your lungs is a bit of an unnatural act. Right. And so people do actually really do struggle with it. So it's not for everyone. I mean, vaporization comes in whole sorts of, you know, sort of the ranges. Right. And it's, it can be smooth to, to not smooth. But, yeah, you know, I think, for example, you know, one of the reasons why in the United States, you know, the, the suppositories are, are really popular with, let's say, cancer patients is because a lot of them are going through things like chemo and they're feeling nauseated and inhalation doesn't feel good, ingestion doesn't feel good. So there are different ways to make sure CBD enters your body. That's good. And I guess one of the drawbacks with the edible forms or the topical forms is, as you said, it doesn't kick in right away. So if you're looking for immediate relief, that's not going to help you. And also, if you're not inclined to have a longer period of being affected by the CBD, that can be an issue too, because it does tend to last longer when you take it that way. Yeah. Although, you know, I would say that most people who use CBD... Want it to last longer. Yeah. Yeah. You want it to last longer. And it's, you know, I mean, I'll give you a great example of, you know, most of our, our patients, including somebody like my mom, who has to drive grandkids and, and all that stuff around during the day, she doesn't want to be impaired. So she takes CBD throughout the day with, you know, almost no THC in it, and it doesn't impair her, but it, it helps her with her rheumatoid arthritis and her colitis, right? And those are the kind of things you do want long-term impact with. For sure. And, and you just touched upon something. 
when somebody takes CBD, it isn't necessarily that they're just taking CBD. And in fact, there may be some THC in it, and they may want there to be some THC in that. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, think about the concept of non-alcoholic beer, right? right. Non-alcoholic beer still has, what, 0.5% alcohol. So it's not completely kind of devoid of it. And the reason I say that is because CBD and cannabis in general and the impact it has really benefits something called the entourage effect, right? So that is... There's all these 144-plus cannabinoids in the cannabis plant that are all working together, and we don't quite fully understand the complex interaction except that we know that everything works better when it's together. And so a little bit of THC in, in the CBD product isn't going to be enough to get you impaired, but it will help the CBD function better. One of the things that I think people really need to be aware of and what's going to be, you know, becoming more important over the next five or ten years is that there is a bit of a differentiation between CBD that is derived as a full-spectrum extract from a cannabis plant versus CBD that is derived from the hemp plant. Yes. So when you derive CBD from the hemp plant, you don't get that same full spectrum, all these other cannabinoids that are expressing themselves in the cannabis plant. And you certainly don't get the THC content. So, you know, study after study is now showing that there is greater efficacy for the CBD that's coming from the cannabis plant because it is this full spectrum extract. You know, the real persuasiveness of the CBD from the hemp plant, though, is it's in the long term is going to be its cost. Right. Right. Because it's a lot cheaper, cheaper to produce. Yep. Absolutely. So you have a lot of, especially in the United States, and of course we see that in the gray or black market in Canada as well, that we, we see that there's all this new influx of CBD products that are coming, that are hemp derived. And I think there's two cautions I would throw up to people who are looking at hemp derived CBD. One is it's not a very well or at all, really, regulated industry. So you have all sorts of issues around quality. Yep. Uh, where did the hemp come from? And, and hemp is a bioaccumulator, so it tends to, to take in everything in the ground that's grown on, right. including bad things. And the other part is, since there's nobody regulating it, there's no regulations around its labeling. Right. So, you know, a lot of the information news articles we see recently say, hey, something claims it's got X amount of milligrams of CBD a milliliter in this oil. We tested it, and it was not accurate. And the legal side, you're required to indicate whether the CBD is coming from cannabis as opposed to hemp, correct? I don't know if you're legally required, but here's here's the thing that people need to know. In Canada and in the U.S., CBD is illegal regardless of, like, illegal in the sense that it's a regulated substance. Right. Regardless of whether it comes from the hemp plant or it comes from the cannabis plant. So as the law stands today, especially in Canada... It doesn't matter if the CBD came from hemp or the CBD came from cannabis. It is still a regulated substance. Well, the point that I was getting at is if you wanted to get CBD from cannabis as yeah. opposed to hemp, is there a way of finding out what type of CBD you're ingesting? Like whether it's coming from the hemp or the cannabis or not? Well, so yeah, I, mean, I think everybody should be, like again, reputable producers should definitely be stating where it right. comes from. But you know, at the end of the day, the CBD molecule, whether it comes from hemp or it comes from cannabis, is the same molecule. Got it. Right. Okay. But it's, it's, it's all the other stuff. That's the really important part. So that the molecule by itself can only do so much. It needs all its friends there to help it. And in hemp, it's got a lot less friends. Gotcha. Are there any contraindications for CBD? Or are there any people that should not 
be trying it or taking it? Uh, you know, there aren't a ton of contraindications, but I think what people do need to know is there's something called the cytochrome P450 system. Uh, it doesn't really matter what that really means, but it's <laughs> something found in your in your liver. It helps metabolize certain toxins in your liver, and CBD impacts that. Now, CBD is not alone. Things like grapefruit, juice, St. John's wort, they all impact the same system. What it does is change or interferes, I guess, with your liver's ability to process certain things. So really the complication, uh, the contraindication here could be certain types of medications that you're taking that also need that system. Uh, the CBD may be like, you know, maybe using that same system, so therefore blocking how quickly these other drugs work with it. But really, the, the amount of complications, the amount of you know, side interactions with CBD are very, very minimal, you know, especially compared to any other pharmaceutical in the industry. And, and as such, it re- represents a really safe and good choice for the vast majority of people. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We'd love to hear back from you again next month. Will you come back? Of course, anytime. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn how to have a mindful marriage on The Tonic. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Our new sponsor, Camprev, is a great natural health company, homegrown right here in Canada. What I love about Camprev is that they take the time to choose the best quality ingredients and formulations that empower Canadians to take an active role in their own health and wellness. New from Camprev is their unique vitamin K2 called K2 Vital. It's produced from soy-free plant oils in a way that yields a pure 100% transform of K2 that is 100% usable by our bodies. They also take a lot of care to produce educational resources. To learn more about this misunderstood vitamin, you can download their ebook at vitamink2.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest is local yogi Tracy Sagrati. She has a post-secondary education in biology, molecular biology, nursing, acute care, public health education, and Swedish and Thai massage. She specializes in training yoga teachers, and she's the co-founder of Evolve Retreat, a phenomenal opportunity for women to celebrate and grow together in Costa Rica. For more information, you can visit EvolveRetreat.org. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jamie. I'm so excited to be here, and uh, I'm really pumped for our topic today. Yeah, me too. So Chaucer was the first to say, and I had to look this up. Oh my God, I love that you did that. Go. Familiarity breeds contempt. Yes. And when it comes to marriage, that's probably an overstatement. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, but our histories with our spouses and built-up frustrations can sometimes be weaponized, right? Yeah, absolutely. And... 
You know, in in that vein, um, one of the things that I wanted to bring to light today was this concept that comes from this relationship expert. His name is Terry Real, if any of the listeners want to look him up, because he's phenomenal. And he came up with this concept called core negative image, and it's called a CNI. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, is that over time, all of us develop these CNIs in relation to our partners, this core negative image. So it's almost as if we unconsciously, so I'm going to be kind to each of us and say that we unconsciously stockpile all of the little annoying, frustrating, irritating, and worst traits of our partners. We absorb all of the past behaviors that we didn't like, and we collect them into this exaggerated image that's completely negative, and it's called the CNI. So that when we get into an argument or a disagreement with the person, suddenly all of the balancing features of that person disappear, and when we look at them, all we see is that CNI. And the funny thing about it is not only are we doing that to them, but they're doing it right back at us. Yes, except I have so few faults (laughs) that the core negative image of me is actually, you know, it's not that bad. No, let's, yeah, I can I, only, I can only imagine the, ca- the CNI. Yeah, I know. I can only imagine what my CNI looks like. <laughs> yeah. Well, so another fascinating part about the CNI is that, okay, so we we develop them, you know, with each other, right? So that when we're in an argument, we're kind of just looking at that portion of the person. Um, but but underneath that, I mean, the the complicating factor is that there is a sliver. Of truth, of course, right, and yeah. so so that's what makes it really, really difficult. And you know, for the purpose of our conversation today, I guess the the main question is, okay, well, how does mindfulness actually help with regard to this CNI? Of course, right? that was my next question. See, I'm right on top of it. I, I just know you so well. I know you so well. So, you know, what mindfulness does at its base is it helps us pay attention to the present moment and to be more aware. Right? Mm-hmm. And when we can build our own awareness around our internal environment and what we're perceiving in our, our internal environment and how we're perhaps projecting, then we can start to challenge ourselves on what's real and what's not real, right? So, yep. so by being aware of the idea that, okay, well, you know, I'm a human being, you're a human being, so we're going ha- to develop these CNIs. Right? We, we have a tendency towards negative bias. We're going to collect all of the things that we see you know, about our partner on their worst day, and we're going to blow that up to make them a monster when we feel like we've been victimized. Yes. So if we're aware that we're doing that, then we can start to challenge it in the present moment, right? Instead of going into autopilot and attacking them as if you know, they're a threat to you. Does that make sense? It does. I suppose it isn't easy. I mean, no. re- recognizing that you can sometimes see your partner in caricature form, which is what we're talking, right? Absolutely. Where, where everything is exaggerated. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's step one. I, but I think the really heavy lifting is in the moment, in the heat of the moment, mm-hmm. recognizing mm-hmm. that and being capable of sort of getting beyond it. I think that mm-hmm. that's the trick, right? Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting that you bring up that point. And I guess I want to say two things. First is it takes a lot of practice, right? And the one thing that I want to say to listeners about any kind of auto-regulation practice, because that's what mindfulness is, it's an auto-regulation practice, is it takes practice. 
practice. So if you're taking medication, for example, for you know a chronic illness, one of the things your doctor says to you is, okay, well, you have to be compliant with your medication. You have to take it every day so that you get it up to therapeutic effects, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what you're looking for is therapeutic effects. Well, it's the same thing with mindfulness. You're not going to practice mindfulness for 20 minutes and then, um, you know, and then be able to short circuit that reactive behavior that might have been in place for, you know, 30, 40, or 50 years. But with daily practice, in as little as eight weeks, you can actually reduce the size of the amygdala in the brain. And the amygdala, it's part of the limbic system. And, and what it does is it kind of, it perceives threat, right? So it yes. looks at a situation, an incoming situation, and, and says, okay, is this a threat to my autonomy? And when you look at what's happening in marriage, so much of the conflict arises because, you know, one person feels like the other person is threatening their autonomy by not giving them a voice, by not giving them options, by controlling them, et cetera, et cetera, right? So if the size of your amygdala actually shrinks in as little as eight weeks of mindfulness meditation, then when someone's say, voicing a complaint to you, right? Because that happens a lot in marriage. You don't perceive it in quite as threatening a way just because your brain mass has changed, right? Yeah. So you're able to hear the message more clearly as, as opposed to focusing on the messenger. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it almost gives you a space, and, and part of that space is also about your ability to regulate a little better, right? So the other thing that mindfulness does, and again, in as little as eight weeks, it just increases the connection between the prefrontal cortex, right, and the amygdala. And the prefrontal cortex is like your executive functioning. It's like the part of you that says, whoa, slow down, Jamie, I know you're freaking out, but let's just look at the situation objectively, okay? So that's right. your prefrontal cortex. And so because that connection is increased, when you practice mindfulness, even if your amygdala is going wah, 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 and you perceive the threat, the prefrontal cortex will slow you down so that there's a little bit of space before you act out that behavior. Okay. So it's like a buffer. It's like a buffer. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the other thing that I wanted to say about how mindfulness helps your marriage is that, okay, obviously it makes you more present, right? right? So that autopilot and the, you know, the obsessive email texting, social media that we've got going on, that's limited because you're just more aware of being present to another person. You tend to be more compassionate, both to yourself and others. So it does increase your compassion. So there's a sense of turning towards. And I'm want to get to why turning towards your partner is really important in a minute. Sure. And it also decreases your tendency to act out behaviors with negative consequences. So you might have, when you're triggered, there might be a cascade of, of things that you do when you're triggered, um, like yell, scream, slam the door, walk out, etc., etc., that because you're mindful and aware of, oh, I'm being triggered, right, that you might not behaviorally act out those things. And so the long-term consequences of that fight are just not as, you know, maybe not as bad as they would be without the mindfulness in place. Right. I mean, if you can disassociate yourself from the visceral reaction, yeah, um, yeah. you can, you know, I think use it to regulate your response. I mean, s- some mercenary people might use it to be more more exacting in their response, which, exactly. might, which might be less helpful. Yes. But, but, that's what that's <laughs> well, 
<laughs> you know, no, I, you're I, right, though. No, right. but no, but certain people think those ways. I've witnessed yes. them. I mean, there yes. are certain people that I think are sociopathic. Who, no, who, I mean, you're who, are, right. who are able to intellectualize and sort of be very destructive if they want to. I've witnessed it. Yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely right. You're I, absolutely I'm interested right. in getting back to sort of turning towards your partner, though. I think yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, that that yeah. was, was really interesting to me. Yeah, so this comes from research from John Gottman, and he, he's done a lot of research on really what makes a marriage last. And he talks about this concept of bids in marriages. And a bid is an attempt towards attention, affection, or positive interaction. And they're often very simple things. And so what his research showed is those who turn towards their partners, bids, actually do so much better in the long term. So they stay together, right? Whether, you know, you're, yeah. you're cohabiting or whatever. So in, in that case, about 86% of the bids were accepted. And he found that couples who turned away from each other, only responding to maybe 33% of the bids, were in relationships that ended. And what a bid looks like, it could be something as simple as, you know, like, your partner coming in and touching you on the shoulder. Yeah, I was going to say, like, even reaching out to hold their hand. No, no, it's super simple stuff, Amy. Super simple stuff. Or, like, you know, say your wife is looking out the window and she's like, oh, wow, look at that bird. It's so beautiful, right? Turning towards is just you turning towards them and going, oh, yeah, that's so beautiful. It's actually in the details. It's in the small things. And those things add up. And it basically, it adds up, you know, and it puts deposits in your emotional bank account. Do you think that one is a cause of the other or an indication of the other? Like, it seems to me if your relationship's on the rocks, you're less inclined to go look at the bird in the window, right? Is it a chicken and egg thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could look at it that way. I think if your relationship is on the rocks, you're less inclined to do that. But I also think if it's on the rocks and you force yourself to do that, it's going to move you towards each other. Right? Because if both people are pushing away from each other, if you're so polarized that you're not even willing to reach out, well, you're, you're not going to be able to come together. Right? And so I think going to, I mean, the work that Terry Real does is on bringing people back together. He's the guy who prevents divorce. And so, you know, in his work with the CNIs, he also brings in this concept of bids, of really teaching people how to make these deposits because you can overcome huge cracks in your marriage just by doing these little things. I agree. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming in and and discussing what I think is a really interesting topic. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks. Such a pleasure. When uh, you come back next month, we're going to discuss aging mindfully, right? It's going to be beautiful. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about the natural approaches to longevity on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. 
Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to discuss that there are areas of the world that seem to have found the fountain of youth, right? Or at least they seem to have mastered living a longer life. That's right. Yeah, so these areas are called blue zones, and uh, there's this researcher, this guy named Dan Butner, that was really fascinated and wanted to understand why and how someone can live to 100 or over 100, so being a centurion. And he found that there's these five areas in the world that there's more people living to 100 than anywhere else in the world. And some of those areas are in North America and some of them aren't. Like, so for example, one big one is Okinawa, correct? Japan. Yes. That's right. Yes. The one in North America is Loma Linda. But it's specific to a particular sect of Seventh-day Adventists, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So they could be kind of like an outliner of these five. So, but the four that are more similar, there's the Japan, there's Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. Yes. Icaria, Greece and Sardinia, Italy. Right, and all those are close to the water, if I'm not mistaken, right? They are. Okay, so let's break it down. What are these people doing that seems to be attributing longer life to them? So there's a few different areas that Dan found that there's similarities of these populations. So first is food. Even though all these populations, you know, it's interesting because it's not like they're all in one area. Japan is so far from Loma Linda, so far from Costa Rica. But they found that all of these groups of populations, the primary food group they're eating is vegetables. They have a very vegetable plant-based diet. So not all of them are vegetarians. The seven-day Adventists in Loma Linda are, but aside from that, all the other populations do eat meat and dairy, except in smaller amounts, specifically meat. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that they all seem to do is they eat local and they eat wild plants. So they'll incorporate more herbs and spices that they're growing in their garden or that's found locally at a farmer's market. They'll pick wild nettles or wild dandelions and put them into their soups, salads, or steep teas with them. And we know that these wild plants and herbs have beneficial properties that may help cellular health and reduce aging as well. So is it the nature of the wild herbs and plants that they were eating, or is it the fact that they are eating stuff that they're growing themselves, perhaps? Probably a mix of both. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that is consistent across all groups is they all eat beans. They incorporate beans into their diet, which some people, you know, right now, keto is really big. Paleo eating is really big. And and, lect- and the lectin diets removing beans is also right. big, too. And I don't agree with that one. But anyways, yeah. So, you know, some people might be surprised at that. But all of these people that live a very long time do incorporate beans into their diet. 
And the ones that do eat meat, they don't eat meat very often. About one or two times a week would be a maximum for meat. And when they do eat meat, it's not just the muscle of the meat. So they wouldn't just be eating like a piece of beef, like a steak. They might also incorporate what's coined nose to tail. So they'll eat more of the collagen, more of different parts of the animal aside from just the muscle, which when researchers looked into that, these individuals are then exposed to different types of amino acids and different properties that could be beneficial for them aside from just the protein from the animal, which is kind of neat as well. So in addition to eating, they're also making other lifestyle decisions, right? That's right. The, a lot of these people have a very strong community. So, of course, in Loma Linda, the seven-day Adventists have the church and their faith that keeps them together and keeps them meeting on a regular basis. The other parts have other sorts of activities, social activities, planned social activities, or gatherings in the evening, on weekends. So loneliness isn't as much of a factor in these populations. Right. They're also doing exercise regularly, but not very intense. It's more of a mild to moderate exercise on a daily basis over, you know, their entire life. So, so is, that, is that like walking or, or mobility or? Yeah, walking, also working in the garden, doing some lifting, doing physical activity around the house, outside the house, maybe building little things in there, like building a garage or little fences around their properties. So these individuals aren't going to the gym and pounding it out in the gym, which is also interesting because there's some recent research coming out that, you know, people going to the gym and doing high level of exercise for, let's say, an hour at a time and then sitting the rest of the day, it's not actually helping their longevity. It's causing stress on the body. Hmm. So it's not practical for people sometimes that work a nine to five and can't get up and move around all the time. But these people, that's what they're doing. They, they've incorporated exercise into the life throughout their day. Okay. Their, so so yeah. it's interesting you say that because I'm one of those people that goes and pounds it out in the gym four or five times a week. But yeah. I was also looking to see how much I'm moving around during the day. And even though I have a dog that I walk at least twice out of the three times and sometimes three times, other than the weekends, I actually don't get my 10,000 steps in, right. which is astounding to me because I actually am walking a fair bit. It's a big deal and it's complicated and challenging to get those steps in, but it really is important. It is. And, you know, for individuals that would like to incorporate those steps or be more active throughout the day, even if you're at a desk, you can get a standing desk. You can yep. get, you know, you can biohack essentially your workspace by bringing some weights into your workspace, getting up and every hour doing a few squats or walking around the office or walking up and down the stairs a few times. All you need essentially is a few minutes every hour or so to actually start to engage in that beneficial activity. Okay. Now, are they doing any specific specific things to increase their longevity, like fasting? We're not sure. I think Seven Day Adventists, I'm not exactly sure if they are fasting, but we do know that fasting in general does increase longevity and a certain type of fasting. So the 16-8 is the very well-known type of fasting where you fast for 16 hours a day. Typically, that's overnight. And then for eight hours, usually at some point in the day, you consume all your calories. 
That seems to actually help cellular longevity. It increases how the way your cells act in a beneficial manner. So cells that are supposed to die will die more likely in a fasting condition aside from when it's not fasting. Then the real best bang for your buck with fasting is a few times a year if you go on a long fast, so anywhere from three to five days, which is not realistic for some people, especially people new to fasting. It's, you know, definitely not recommended. But someone who's been doing fasting for long periods of time, does 16-8 fasting, and maybe is under the supervision of a healthcare professional, doing an extended fast is really when you start to get into anti-aging effects for fasting. Interesting. We may want to cover that in a different show at, a, at another day. Yeah. How else are they managing their stress other than sociability? Is there anything else they're doing? A lot report that in Japan, they have something called ikigaya, which means, translated to English, means the reason you get up to do in life or the reason you get up to yeah, go. A sense of purpose. A sense of purpose. And so there's not a word for it in all of these areas, but all of them consistently have something to get up to do. So there's not this, you know, in North America, you know, we work to maybe 60, 65, and then we retire, and then maybe there's not something as much to get up and do in the day. The Okinawans also work for, you know, well until their 70s. And even when they don't work, they have a plan of something they're going to do every single day. So that seems to be very helpful for stress management. The Sardinians, I believe, are also very sexually active well into the later parts of their life as well. So that can be helpful for stress management. And all of them report that they, you know, seem to be engaging in the outdoors a little bit more than maybe the average North American would be. So those all aspects probably help to uh, manage their stress. Okay. So we've dealt with food, exercise, stress, and the specifics of fasting. Is it something inherent about where they are in the world that's helping them live longer? Is it, is it a question of the temperature or climate that's helping them? It could be. We know what's really interesting is body temperature and keeping your body really warm or being in the heat inside your house for a long period of time isn't great for cellular health. Huh. Anti-aging, actually, or, or you get benefits and reduce cellular aging by exposing your body to cold which is really interesting. And uh, we know that certain Nordic practices, for example, Russians are very well known for going into the hot and cold or doing ice baths. And they have for years, generations, um, reported health benefits. But now we see that that actually is is helping anti-aging. So even if we live in a heated house for most of the year, as many Canadians do, you can do this on your own by doing hot and cold showers. So if you go into the shower, you have a regular hot shower, and then when you're ready to be finished the shower, you turn it to cold, then hot, then cold, then hot, and then you end on cold. And what that does is it increases lymphatic flow into the body. It dumps nitric oxide, so it increases circulation, but it also seems to be really beneficial for how the cells operate in the body. And as an added bonus, it actually, cold, exposing your body to cold over time can actually kill fat cells. So there was a myth for a while that fat cells can't be killed. Once you have fat cells, they're just going to shrink. Right. But you can actually kill fat cells with cold. Wow. 
That is something I may try out personally. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. When you come back next month, we'll discuss natural anti-aging for the skin, right? Yes. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn what makes a great cookbook on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over five years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. Hi. So in this digital age in which the internet, streaming, and apps have completely overtaken traditional media, including books, some might wonder, why is it worthwhile to review cookbooks like you do? But cookbooks are still very relevant, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I am biased yes. you know, because I write about them and I like them and I have over 100. But objectively speaking, yes, they're still relevant. Sales in cookbooks are rising, actually. They're up 21% in 2018 over 2017, which is a big jump. That's surprising. It's probably the only traditional media where that's the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, those figures are from the States, but I'm sure Canada is similar. We read even more than they do in the United States. <laughs> so ours are up 30%. Exactly. <laughs> So cookbooks are relevant, which brings us sort of to the intersection of the internet and cookbooks, because the internet is obviously relevant as well. And one of the sites that I think you wanted to talk about today was the Piglet, right? Yeah. So the Piglet is kind of a fun cookbook review competition or cookbook competition that is done every year. It's run by the uh, Food 52 website and it's in its 10th year, just finished. And it's and, like the NCAA basketball. Yes. It's, it's like a showdown. You play around, you win, you move forward to the finals. Yes. Yeah, so 16 books are chosen each year and then there's four rounds. So first it's eight pit against eight and then, you know, so on until you get to the finals. And I know that you read it all the time and, you know, you, they have interesting reviewers doing the the cookbook reviews, right? Yeah. So the general goal was to generate better and more transparent cookbook reviews. And the reviews are written by a whole variety of people. It's really interesting. I don't know how they pick them. Celebrities, like they've had Sarah Michelle Gellar, the Queer Eyes, Anthony Browski, but they also have chefs and professional writers, authors, you know, sort of novel writers who don't have anything to do with food, and then food writers. There's a real selection of people, and some are really good writers, and some are less, but they all have their own perspective. Some people have even done video reviews. But you see, 
if you're interested in food and cooking, it's fun to read them because they try the recipes, they write about what they think about the book, and it, if it's a good review, it makes you want to go and buy the book. Right, and there's a lot of overlap from the books that they're reviewing and the books you, you're reviewing, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the sources that I choose books from because I see, you know, I, they choose books that have been critically acclaimed and people have liked, and then I also see those books. And so I, I'm not always surprised with the books that end up making it into the competition. But there's always new ones that I learn about, too. It just recently occurred, right? So so mm-hmm. what are some of the books that they were touting this year? So the top four books were Shia by Alon Shia, which was a book about somebody who was born in the States and then lived in Israel and then went back to the States, lived in Italy and went back to the States. He owned some restaurants in New Orleans. And so it's this mishmash of Southern, Italian, Jewish, American cooking. So it's a bit strange, but the recipes are really good. And I hear that people really like to cook from them. I just got the book myself, so I haven't cooked anything yet. Right. There's also Season by Nick Sharma, which is an, a fusion of Indian-American cooking, which I do have and I have cooked from. And the recipe is really good. The photography is beautiful, really beautiful. And it's kind of an inspiring cookbook. Soul by Todd Richards, which is Southern cooking, which is also, you know, your typical down South cooking of, you know, biscuits and gravy and sausage and corn and all the things that you would think of. But he he is apparently a very good chef and it's a good cookbook. The winner of the contest was called Bottom of the Pot by Naz Duravian, and it's about Persian cooking. Okay. So you've had a chance to look at these books and, and, and in general looked at the books who've been in the competition. Why are these books good? Like, like what makes a good cookbook? Well, one thing, and I thought it was interesting when I was reading the reviews, is it seemed to be very important to people that they tell a good story. You know, it's not just the recipes, and some cookbooks are just the recipes, but a lot of the cookbooks that were chosen are telling a story about you know, that this was developed from a recipe that, you know, the grandmother used to make or what life was like. You know, some of the cookbooks were from, there was a Filipino cookbook, there was a Puerto Rican cookbook, so various nationalities, and it gives you a bit of a window into what life was like and what their food is like. And, of course, what cuisine is like gives you insight onto what life is like. It's sort of circular. Right. So you do learn something and, and about the person and their background. Also, teach something new. So new cuisine, new tips, new approach. One of the cookbooks that was in the contest was the Noma Guide to Fermentation. And Noma is a restaurant, a famous restaurant in Denmark. Oh, and is it the top-rated restaurant yeah, in the world? Yeah. They use all kinds of crazy techniques, but they have written this book, which I'm not sure most people would actually use or buy. Apparently, it's very good, but it's all about fermentation like kombucha and all that. Right. Well, fermentation is a very hot button topic in health and wellness. Right. It's because it's good for you. Right. And so I think this cookbook's probably interesting, but it's not something that everybody is going to cook from. Which is a a good point. I mean, really, the purpose of a cookbook is to provide information for somebody who might want to make a recipe. So if these recipes aren't accessible, then really what's the point? You know, like if they're too hard to do, if they're too chefy or they're too involved or there's too many steps, you know, I question the utility of the cookbook other than to take up space on the shelf and maybe look pretty. I don't know. I I mean, the person who wrote the review of Noma can't remember which one it was pitted against, but it ended up losing. Right. But the person who was Andrew Knowlton, who was the editor 
of Bon Appetit magazine, and it was a good review, said like he was familiar with the techniques because of the Bon Appetit test kitchen, and he made these lacto blueberries. I'm not quite sure what that is, which he said were amazing, really interesting, sour, sweet condiment for ice cream or yogurt. And he also made kombucha, but he ended up saying, "But will I use it much?" You know, he right. picked, he picked the most the simplest recipes in the book to start, and you know, it's not really accessible for most people. Right. But so it didn't win. But it's still an interesting book. So anyway, back to the point that teaching something new, if you're interested in fermentation, great. That's a reason to buy a cookbook. What I thought was interesting is one of the reviewers, Emily Weinstein, who's an editor of New York Times Cooking, wrote about, you know, the best cookbooks are for cooking, which right. seems somewhat obvious. Right. But no, I, no, but that's my, I, agree, I agree with her. Yeah. And so she, in her review, which was between Bottom of the Pot and Shia, she bottom of the pot one because it was just clearer, better directions, slightly better photography, a bit less chefy. In Shia, the stories, all his stories drove the organization of the book. And I fully agree with this. It's a little bit hard to find the recipe because it's not organized in your typical fashion. So recipes are great. It's just a little bit harder to find, you know, what you're looking for. And so for all those reasons, she said, you know, for cooking, bottom of the pot was better, and that's why it won. I'm frequently surprised. I don't usually cook from recipes, but sometimes, you know, you'll say, why don't we have this for dinner? And, you know, I'll reference the recipe because I know you're looking for that specific dish. And it always intrigues me how steps seem to be missing in certain recipes, or there's sort of implied timelines that aren't necessarily natural to the way the recipe is written and, and makes it less functional. And to my mind, a recipe should be functional. Uh, to me, that's that's the key criteria to a good cookbook is functional recipes that you can actually follow. Yes, and I recently wrote a review about Rose's Baking Basics right. in the magazine, and that was one of the cookbooks in the contest too. But it's very well thought of cookbook, but I didn't love it because it was there was too much direction. There were <laughs> pictures and steps, all of which when I first looked at it, I thought, great, very helpful because you can see what something should look like when it's being mixed here and, and then at the stage when it's being mixed there. And so that that's helpful. But she had so many steps and tips that I actually didn't agree with them. I thought things were a bit wasteful and there were too many steps. It seems like that was perhaps just me and I felt guilty about my review, but that is what I thought. But that's your opinion. That was my my true, honest opinion. And also you look at a lot of cookbooks, so Mm -hmm. I think think it's relevant. And nobody, sometimes you find yourself in a recipe and there's a step in it and it takes maybe 15, 20 minutes or however long it takes. And then when you're done and you're eating the food, it's like, why did I spend an extra 20 minutes doing that particular procedure? It doesn't seem to bring anything to the dish. I mean, maybe it does, and we're just too ignorant to realize it, but I don't like those types of recipes that make you do something for no good reason. Yeah, I like when they highlight, this is a special occasion recipe. This takes a little bit longer. You know, it has a lot of steps, but it's worth it. And then that's fine. And then I know. Right. All right. Is there anything you wanted to add about the finalists this year? Like any any more insights as to which books you would recommend from that group? Sure. Well, I was just, I thought I would talk about what some of the interesting recipes from sure. the, the We only have the like a, a minute or so left, so go ahead. No, it's fine. So Shia, one of his famous recipes seems to be this whole roasted cauliflower with whipped feta, which looks sounds, good to me. Sounds delicious. Yeah. And even even the kids <laughs> seem to eat it. And his recipe for hummus is also supposed to be top-notch. Bottom of the pot, you've got tadig, T-A-H-D-I-G, which is a crispy rice dish. It's supposed to be very delicious. 
season. I made an orange and fennel upside down cake, which is very interesting. It was a very adult, adult cake. Adult cake, interesting flavors, not too sweet, but good. I liked it. And from Seoul, chicken and barbecue beans, black pepper thyme cornmeal biscuits. Can't go wrong with any of that comfort food. I totally agree. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. You're going to come back next month to discuss the must-haves, the should-wants, and the don't-needs of utensils, pantry items, and cookbooks to outfit your kitchen. Yes? Yes. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For great articles written by Dr. Emily Lipinski and Naomi Bussin, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me directly at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss more residential real estate, how to travel like a holistic nutritionist, and reasonable expectations of your yogi. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.